Welcome to episode 304 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back to another episode. Brian, we got a good one today. It's going to be short, too. Short one. Got listener questions, but not much else. Let's let's get into it. Yeah. Before we do, I want to thank our sponsor, Abstract, for making this episode possible. Yes. Thank you to Abstract. What is Abstract? Abstract is the design workflow management system that empowers design teams and stakeholders to seamlessly manage, version, and collaborate on design files. So today, most design teams work on multiple versions of the same file, often duplicating efforts, and as a result, overwriting and losing work. So as design teams are still spending a frustrating amount of time searching for files and exporting them from one tool to another and consolidating feedback from a bunch of different sources, you never really know what changes have been incorporated and what's been approved. So how do we solve this, Brian? Yeah, introducing Abstract, the solution for all of these problems. It's like GitHub, but for designers. It's your team's version-controlled source of truth for all of your design work. It brings the whole workflow into a single unified place not only for designers, but also for developers, PMs, and any other stakeholder in your company to collaborate and keep work moving forward. It is end-to-end collaboration, so everything from versioning design files and storing them, requesting reviews, gathering feedback, presenting work, and then eventually handing off an actual spec to developers. And all of this is on a platform that works both on and offline. In just the last couple of years, Abstract has acquired over 100,000 users. That includes people from companies like Intuit and Zappos and MailChimp and thousands of others across 75 different countries. They all rely on Abstract to improve their design workflows. So as the roles of designers and developers and PMs become more intertwined, the team at Abstract believes that a more collaborative and open platform is going to enable faster production cycles. Today, Abstract seamlessly integrates with Sketch, the design tool of choice for many of you. And in 2019, they're going to continue rolling out support for additional design file types from the Adobe suite to beyond. You can learn more by going to abstract.com today, sign yourself up, get your team on board. They have a 30-day free trial. Learn more at abstract.com. Thank you so much, Abstract, for sponsoring the show and making this episode possible. Yeah, thanks, Abstract. All right, Marshall, we got no follow-up this week. No, yeah, because we're recording in the past for an episode in the future. No follow-up, no news. Thusly, no news, because we have not existed in the timeline yet where there would be news to discuss. (laughs) Isn't that weird? I feel so unstuck from time, Ryan. Yeah. So let's get straight into some listener questions. We got a yeah. few few good ones this week. We'll try and keep them tight and keep this episode uh, maybe a little bit shorter. We say that every time, but I think <laughs> I believe in us, Marshall. We can I think t- we can do it just because we don't have much option this week. So <laughs> Yeah, we just skipped like 20 minutes of us rambling. So <laughs> here we go. Straight into listener questions. All right, so the first one is a, a DM, and, and they didn't say that we could use their name or not, so I, I won't say the name. But the question is, it's on uh, the 8-point grid and mobile. So the question is, do you allow align the grid to the bounding box of objects or to the text within? Do you wind up with an on-grid design and dev just works off whatever the bounding box is? If you document the spec, it seems it is for design only because the bounding box isn't taken into consideration. How do you handle this? Is the grid for baselining text or aligning to the bounding box? So uh, that that was a word salad, but I think the question here is how do you align text boxes do you align it to the grid or do you align it to a baseline grid so what's being referred to here as a baseline grid is is the baseline is the 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 bottom line of any given text it's it's where the descenders descend from it's basically the the bottom of an l or an m or an n the bottom line so if you have a regular cadence for your baselines 
and that cadence is is aligned across all elements of the page, not just within a singular component, you can have a, a baseline grid. Is that an accurate representation of that, Brian? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is what people are referring to when they are talking about vertical rhythm, like baseline grids or aligning to a baseline grid helps create consistent vertical rhythm, regardless of with whether it's text or other elements. Exactly. So how do you align it? Because because every text yeah. element is rendered differently depending on the tool you're using and what platform it's being built for. I, I'm curious your answer and then if it changes for the platform that you're designing on, but continue. Yeah, that, okay, exactly. So we mentioned, I believe a couple of weeks ago uh, in the show notes and, and I think even in the body of the podcast where we called out Bryn Jackson's eight point grid article. And it actually uh, addresses this, the text elements is, is one section of the article. So uh, you can take a look at that and that, that outlines some of the baselining stuff I was referring to, but in actual practice, how do I handle it? Typically I will adjust the, the letting, so the line height of, of a given element of a given text box and use that to, to align. So I'll, I'll do a, a horizontal center or I guess a vertical center, whichever. <laughs> I'll align it like, yeah, vertical like a, a name with a, an avatar or something. Like I will do the alignment based on the text box, based on the letting of that text for that size of that element. So it doesn't always perfect, but usually it works out nicely. And then it just kind of depends on how you implement it. Like each, each platform handles it differently and you can kind of see what it looks like when implemented the way you had it laid out in Sketch or Figma or whatever. And uh, if it still looks right, then you're good to go. Otherwise, you can kind of do bespoke editing per platform and just kind of do a universal thing of like, well, at this font size, it's always it always feels like a point too high. So push that down universally across the board for that for that style. Yeah, that's the biggest pain in the ass is like mm -hmm. everything feels one point too high and then you nudge it down and then you have uneven like measurements between the bounding box that's the perfectionist's nightmare but it optically ends up looking centered which is in reality what you want right so yeah it doesn't have to be right it just has to look right and and another thing i would say about the baseline grid is it is a a wonderful goal to have in reality i have almost never seen it implemented at all like accurately yeah it's it's fun to do in figma but just realize or or sketch or whatever you're designing in but in reality it's just probably not going to end up looking like that yeah it just kind of doesn't happen it's yeah it's it's aspirational but as far as actually getting it implemented accurately on every platform on every surface blah 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 i would i would set my expectations lower yeah i think tactically the way i handle this in Figma is I just put everything in frames and I'll optically center things within that frame and then snap the edges of frames to the edges of other frames like Legos. Bounding boxes. Yep. Bounding boxes. Right, right. And I, I rarely ever consider the the baseline unless I have for some reason in a section of the interface like repeating rows of things, text and icon combinations or something like those. I might spend a little more time and try and get them right. But yeah, as we said, Ultimately, at implementation time, it probably will not end up being exactly perfect. Yep, I would say the like one of the main times you want to make sure that your baseline grid is on point is <laughs> literally on point is if you have two text strings next to each other on the same line that are different sizes. So, say you have a title and like a subtitle that's that's in line with it, like right aligned, left aligned, and right aligned. You would want to make sure those have the same baseline. 
unless you're doing something very specific where you want them to have the same center line, vertically centered, but... Which would be a little bit weird, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you have a row that has a label for that row and then like a, a, a detail that's right aligned or something and there's a, a disclosure chevron on the right side, like in settings or something like that, if those aren't the same font size, you would want them to have the same baseline, probably. Yeah. All right, so that was another answer on the eight-point grid. Uh, lots and lots of questions on the eight-point grid. Sounds I like I love them. Yeah, yeah. keep them coming because there's so much detail here. Keep pointing people to Bryn's post. Uh, it's on spec.fm/specifics. He had a post on the eight-point grid. They're fun to answer, but it sounds like maybe Marshall, you need to write your own like version of this and get it all out of your system because it, it's a deep rabbit hole. I mean, there's just so much to it. I, I almost actually prefer the specific questions because you can go a little bit deeper on mm. some of the detail when. I don't know if I would ever be able to finish that article if I were to try to write it. <laughs> I'd have to like update it in now. sections. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, but yeah, I mean, I don't mind answering the questions. So if you have them, keep asking them. I'm happy to, t- I'll talk about the eight point grid till I die. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. There's that. Uh, we got another question. This one is from Anonymous. It's a direct message that we received in relation to episode 302, where we talked about designing dark patterns and, and how to exist within an organization that has them or wants you to design for them. And this direct message we received is a little bit long. So we're going to try and sum it up. And it is loosely, how do you think about organizations that either implement or are taking advantage of dark patterns as you're interviewing at that company? So I can contrive an example. For example, if I and this will actually be what we talked about in episode 302. So if I'm interviewing at Facebook and I know that they have this pattern of when people downgrade, they sort of have this guilt trip screen where they show the the avatars of people that you have relationships with and it says, oh, these people are going to miss you if you delete your account. Are you sure? Sort of tugging your emotional strings in an unethical way. If I'm interviewing at Facebook, how should that kind of thing factor in my decision to work there? Do I approach it like, oh, I can come in and change that? Or is it instead a red flag that that's the kind of organization that I shouldn't work for in the first place? So that, that's my paraphrase. I think the, the, the question asker had a little bit more specific nuance, but asked to stay anonymous. So I hope that's a accurate paraphrase to this person who wrote it. Yeah, I think that's fair. And also, to be, to be fair, I think that so-and-so will miss you pattern. The only reference I was able to find to it was from back in like 2010. So I don't think, I'm not sure if they're still doing it today. I don't think they're still doing that today. But, but in general, yeah, if you know that there's a, something like that going on before you do the interview... What should you do? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe you and I can just each answer it. And I don't know if there's a right answer, but Marshall, I could just throw the question at you. Like you're interviewing at a new company and you know that they implement dark patterns. How do you think about that in the interview process? I mean, for me, it would be either I would have to say I'm okay with these dark patterns or if I were to take the job, I would have to either be okay with the dark patterns or I would have to suppose that I have the ability going into it to change those dark patterns or influence the company in such a way that they would stop doing that. How would you check whether that would be possible? I guess you could ask about it in the interview. <laughs> like, I noticed you do X, Y, and Z. Like, yeah, yeah those are those are kind of negative things. Uh, is there any room for changing those things? Have you? Is this intentional or accidental? I think that's actually, you know, we laughed, but I think that's a pretty valid approach is you could abstract it a little bit, right? You could say, how how does the design team influence like legacy changes or make legacy changes? How 
how does the design team get buy-in like with leadership to to fight dark patterns like what would be the yeah and you could even say this specific example so i noticed that this thing exists let's say i were to work at this company what would be the process to go about changing it and i'm sure that you will learn a lot from the interviewer's reply mm-hmm. because they probably have never been asked that before and they'll either have a good answer because they've also been frustrated with that which will tell you whether or not it's possible but they might also say oh yeah look we have these legacy things here's the approach that we we have to fix it and you caught one that we haven't fixed yet like maybe you'll learn something that is encouraging my hunch is uh they will be taken aback and won't have a good answer <laughs> most of yeah. the time because they probably just don't think about it it was done years ago and they just don't they don't think about it or you know yeah so yeah basically just ask maybe <laughs> i don't know i don't know but I w- if, if you were to take the job you'd have to either do it knowingly or or expecting to to swoop in and change things assuming you didn't agree with them i think it gets more complicated too if the company is let's call it a resume builder company where people know that if they... Yep. If I have this on my resume, I can get a job anywhere afterwards. Pass that test, you're in. Mm-hmm. This is a stamp of approval from a major corporation that says, you're worth hiring. Yeah. That makes the decision harder. But again, I think it also just comes back to the answer that you gave, Marshall, at the end of uh, episode 302, which is you are responsible either way. Like, if you don't take the job, you're responsible for the consequences of that decision. And likewise, if you do take the job, you are responsible for the consequences of that decision. And you might not be the only one responsible, but you are responsible. You will carry some of that responsibility, even if it's legacy stuff, right? Like because it's on your resume, your resume now carries all of the cruft of having that company on your resume. So think it through. Yeah, I think just asking. I think I like that answer the most because asking the interviewer if there's a process in place to fix that will probably be enlightening and even even more broadly like demonstrate perhaps the impact that design has within the organization as a whole. Mm-hmm. Whether that interviewer feels powerful or powerless to change that. Yeah, and probably not just one interviewer. If you have multiple people coming in like for an on-site interview, like I would ask each of them. Yeah, cross-reference. Back channel. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. Well, I uh, hope that was an adequate answer. There's no real answer except, you know, you're going to have to be responsible for, for these decisions. But hopefully the, there's a framework there. All right, we have a last question, Marshall. We are breezing through. Look at us on time. I know, what a short episode. This is a dream come true. Everyone's going to love it. <laughs> All right, so this question is interesting, and I think I, I might have a good answer for it. But okay, this person also did not say that we could use their name, so we will say from anonymous, asks... Are you cognizant of how you are preparing for your personal portfolio while you're doing your design work at a company, or do you specifically just focus on the company's goals? So Marshall, when you're doing your work in the back of your head, are you thinking, here's how this is going to look on my portfolio, here's how I'm going to document it and capture the outcomes and process of it? And then, <laughs> Nope. <laughs> Nope. Uh, yeah, I'm the, I'm the wrong person to ask for this because I plan on never leaving. I never think about this. I'm just like, okay, get this done. What's next? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't really think about that. So maybe you can be, have a better answer. Yeah, well, okay. Let me add on just one more bit of context here from the listener's question. So sure. uh, this person said that they don't have that much research on their team. And so as they're designing things, this person has in the back of their mind like, oh my gosh, we don't have a, a great research process. And at some point, I'm going to have to put in my portfolio like, hey, we didn't do any research or we did bad research or something like that. So my answer is loosely the fact that you are aware of a missing piece of the process Mm -hmm. 
at, that would reflect badly in a future case study on your portfolio is a great opportunity to change that process. Obviously easier said than done, but the fact that the self-awareness exists is a great sign, right? Like the worst case scenario is you leave, you're working on your portfolio and you're like, oh shit, we never did all this important stuff that other people care about. So that seems like a great thing to, to be thinking about right now. But my answer to this is not, are you preparing for your personal portfolio while you're doing this work? But I think it's more, you can multitask by just preparing for your review cycle because they basically do the same thing. That's a good point. And the way you can do that is just document, screenshot, take notes, like be organized in such a way that when it comes time to write your self-review at the end of a, a quarter or a half, you have all these artifacts that you can point to and results that you can write and quotes that you can copy and paste as you are developing the product. Those artifacts and quotes and outcomes and, and inputs, all of that is exactly what you'd probably <laughs> is exactly what you'd want to put in a case study anyways. So you're double tasking, but you're doing it in a much more like company positive way. Like you're not thinking of your exit strategy your whole the whole time. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it it feels a little bit more ethical, even though it's fulfilling the same purpose, I guess. Does that make sense? Is that unethical? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, and and I think we mentioned it on a previous episode, but specifically with research or or any of these things, like we don't have a design system or whatever. Like you can do that. Like you can you can take it upon yourself and do it. The only restriction to what you have available to you is how much you're willing to do. A lot of times, like so, for example, with with research, like you you could potentially conduct that yourself. I would I would make sure to do a lot of research about research before I did it, but like there's nothing stopping you from asking customers what they think of your work in progress, right? Same thing with like yeah. a design system. Maybe there isn't one, but like you could start a sketch library or a Figma library or whatever they call it. Like you, you could do that if you wanted to. No one's stopping you. And chances are, if you do a, a bit of the work and show it to people, they'll either want to help and contribute or or encourage you to, to continue on and put you in contact with the right people to like make it real. You know yeah. what I mean? And you know what a positive outcome of doing this is too? You have good on your resume. <laughs> another case study that's not about the work, but about how you fixed organizational process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. a huge, huge thing. That's going to look real good. <laughs> yeah, that's actually like part of the job requirements for once you get to a higher level at a lot of places. Like you should be uh, influencing the, the design culture wider, not just in your team, not just yeah. on your features, but in the entire product, the entire org. Yeah, not only do you push pixels and build products that solve problems, but you help influence the process by which everyone else can push pixels and solve problems and multiply that impact. So mm-hmm. this is one of those ways to do it. It's more responsibility, but it's a, it's a good thing to do for everybody, yourself included. Yeah, yeah. I have a recommendation for the user research specifically. If you don't have a process, you don't have a budget for or headcount for hiring user researchers, I recently came across a book recommended to me by Max Stoiber, my co-founder at Spectrum and co-worker at GitHub. It's called The Mom Test. It's a book by Rob Fitzpatrick. It is like a two-hour read, maybe. It is a very, very small book. And the, the subtitle is How to Talk to Customers and Learn If Your Business is a Good Idea When Everyone is Lying to You. And I think this is a, I found it really useful even having been a part of teams that have user researchers, I found it useful for myself to clarify, all right, these are good kinds of questions to ask. Here are signals that I'm receiving bad data. 
you know, here's signs that people are just being nice to me instead of telling me what they actually think. So it specifically to user research, if you want to check out this book, The Mom Test, uh, I would recommend it. What's The Mom Test in reference to? Is it like your mom's always going to say you look handsome? Is it that kind of thing? Or like, yeah. Is it stand for something? M-O-M? Does that stand for as an acronym? No, it's literally how you should frame user research questions as though you were asking your mom and your mom is the kind of person who doesn't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah, that's a bad thing though, right? Exactly. So how do okay. you get, how do you, how do you ask questions that will help her, your mother or someone who doesn't want to hurt your feelings be actually truth. honest with you and forthcoming with, with what they need, what they want, where, where you're falling short. Like mm-hmm. there are ways to approach that conversation that will be more productive than saying, what do you think? Does this uh-huh. look good? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you're the most handsome boy. <laughs> oh, it's great, honey. I would totally use it. Yeah. I'll pay for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. That's a good that's a good recommendation. Sweet. Yeah. Well, that's all our listener questions. Nailed it. And we're we're twenty three minutes in. I like Damn. this. Short episode. That gives us time that gives us like half an hour for cool things, Brian. Let's do it. Do you want to go first this week? <laughs> uh sure, yeah, I'll go first. So my cool thing I actually just discovered this morning. So, you know, seat of the pants, but um it's a really cool thing. So have you heard of the uh, series, the NPR Tiny Desk Concerts, Brian, on YouTube? Uh, maybe. No. No. Well, <laughs> in, in, no. Okay. So NPR uh, does this thing where they, that they call Tiny Desk Concerts, where they'll have artists, big name artists even, come in and do a little, like, almost acoustic set behind this tiny desk in their office, and everybody crowds around, and they record it and put it up on YouTube. And they're they're very good. There's there's a huge spectrum of artists, everybody from, like, little people you've never heard of to, like, Adele, right? Okay. And a, a video that just came out a couple days ago, well, one day ago for me, and we're in the future now, so, like, a couple weeks ago for you, listener, is the Imogen Heap. Are you familiar with Imogen Heap, Brian? Hide and seek. Yes, yeah, exactly. I like that song. Yeah. Where are we? Uh, <laughs> so I like that, that song that a song. lot, actually. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a it's a great fucking song, and it's from like the early two thousands. Like, I'm gonna pull a little hipster cred. I discovered Imogen Heap before she was big, and I was like a huge fan of that song before it became like a parody uh, on SNL. Link in the show notes. But th- that hide and seek song is excellent and she performs it and she even says like if i don't perform it people throw tomatoes at me she's british (laughs) so here's the cool thing is she performs it with these gloves on her hands and the gloves are tied to basically a looping pedal um if you're familiar with with the looping pedal brian you know what i'm talking about Uh uh-huh where you can, yeah, Ed Sheeran uses this. Basically, you, you build layers of recordings on top of each other so you can perform solo but sound like you have a whole band behind you, yep. essentially, one loop at a time. And she does that with hand gestures and hand positions and pitch and yaw and roll of her hands and everything. It, it, it detects all of the minutia of, of her movements, and she uses that to be the loop pedal. So she's basically like conducting herself as she's singing the song. It's really fascinating. And, the, and this glove, these gloves are, are hooked up to a program that I guess she helped create called Glover that you can basically create scenes for each song. What? So each, each song has a scene. So like you're, you're 
orchestration, your, your, your conducting of that song can be unique for each one, depending on the, the types of tools you need for, you know, doing like stuff and, you know, like all the, all the crazy. <laughs> like what? She said, she says in the video, this is, it's the third song in the video. It's a, the last one, I believe. Again, link in the show notes. But she says she didn't like standing behind a computer or like a set of knobs while she was performing this song. It just felt very sterile and not interactive. So she helped you know create this glove thing and it's fucking awesome i would recommend you watch it just because like i feel like uh this has a lot of different practical applications outside of music but uh brian what do you think uh i'm gonna check this out I'm, i've looked up thumbnails on youtube so i have a youtube video queued up looks cool um i will have to watch this afterwards and see what it looks like in practice I would like it actually if if what you said is true and she's able to compose on the go and I'd like to see more electronic artists embrace something like this because electronic music shows lack a lot of the performance entertainment. It's like, yeah, okay, you're standing behind your laptop and you're twisting some knobs and the performance is how dramatically you can twist the knob, which is comical. It would be cool to see people continue this exercise and getting out from behind the, the computer screen. Yeah. And even like when you speak to the performance of it, it, it almost gave me the vibe of the like opera performance from Fifth Element. You know what I'm talking about? Like Diva Plava Laguna? You know what I'm talking about? I don't remember that, but I, I know the Fifth Element. Uh, the, the blue lady with the t- hair tentacle things that gets... I don't, I don't want to spoil. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, she sings that crazy like uh, opera thing. Yeah, it's you know not the same by any means, but it, it, because <laughs> of the hand performance, it gave the same vibe as that, which I consider to be a good thing. But yeah, anyways, that was my cool thing, Brian. What's yours? Cool thing. All right, my cool thing this week is a company which makes great products for people who like making coffee. You just had a coffee recommendation last week. I know. So we're continuing on. So at this point, you have subscribed to Trade, and you are now ordering fresh beans. And you because have, we listen to everything you say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I command an, an army of consumers. <laughs> All right. So you have your coffee beans, and there's a whole other like rabbit hole of what's the best grinder, but let's assume you have a grinder. So how do you store it, and how do you actually make really great coffee? Well... There is a company called Fellow that makes very well-designed, beautiful, uh, albeit expensive, coffee machinery. And so I own two... Receptacles. Yeah, I own two of their products, which I really like. The first one is called the Atmos Vacuum Canister, which is a vacuum-sealed canister to store your beans. There's two design options. There's one that is glass and one that is a matte black metal. I have the black matte black one. Oh man, you should have got the clear one. No, the matte black is, is really pretty. I like it. And I mean they're both nice, but yeah. Yeah, they're both nice. But the 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 quality is great, like the interaction of it. So you, you put the lid on and you just twist twist the, the lid a couple times to suck the oxygen out. So that's great for storing your beans. And then I also have the the stag EKG, so the electric kettle. And this is an expensive kettle, but it is very, very usable. I love the design of it. It is pretty. And here's how I justify the cost of this is going out and buying coffee every day, like four or five dollars, making coffee at home every day, like one dollar. So I can invest in making sure that the things that that help me make great coffee at home are the best quality and 
yeah, so I, I bought a nice kettle and some vacuum canisters. How much was it? Like 150, 200. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's gorgeous, matte black, everything. It, it's expensive in comparison to other electric kettles, which you can get for like 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they look like garbage. They look fucking terrible. And this one is <laughs> like, this, this one is in museums. It's in museums of modern art. A Red Dot Design Award winner. Yeah, it, it's just fantastic. And it's got a great handle and like the, the interaction to, you know, adjust the temperatures, this knob that has just perfect tension. Uh, yeah, it's just really well put together. So uh, fellowproducts.com, they have a few others for people that are into pour overs. They have a coffee steeper for people that want like a French press style experience and uh, lots of good stuff here. Awesome. That's a very cool thing. I'm, I might have to get one of these for the lady. Oh, yeah. So if you make coffee at home, I, I highly recommend all these. I actually want to try the next thing that I'll get from them is this called the duo coffee steeper because i like french press a lot i've been doing chemex mostly these days but i used to do a french press every day mm-hmm. and they have this product called the duo which basically looks like they've solved french press creation like the management of it and like the french press has if you don't get the grind quite right it can get a lot of particles into the bottom of the, the coffee and this seems to solve that so oh i used to use a french press back when i drink coffee oh yeah well cool thing brian yeah All right. Well, that was it. That was episode 304. We hope you enjoyed listening. Let us know what you thought on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. Hit us up. Keep those listener questions coming uh, either by DM or just tweet at us. But if you DM us and want us to use your name, be sure to say that explicitly. And maybe maybe write how you want us to pronounce your name, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, we're going to assume it's anonymous and we will butcher your name. So help help (laughs) us help you. Thank you, of course, to Abstract for making this episode possible. Abstract is the design workflow management system that empowers design teams and stakeholders to seamlessly manage a version and collaborate on design files. Get your team signed up today at abstract.com. They have a 30-day free trial. You have nothing to lose, everything to gain. That's at abstract.com. Thank you again so much to Abstract for sponsoring and making the show possible. Of course, if you need more podcasts, go to spec.fm. Those are podcasts for designers and developers just like you. Produced also by our editors and producers, Sarah and Drew. Go check out Layout by Rafa and Kevin, another design podcast with all the latest talk about design industry news and answering listener questions. Uh, And then more shows for developers, if that's the thing you're into. So that's all at spec.fm. Thank you, Sarah and Drew, for for the work on design details and all the work on the spec.fm network of shows. And I guess that's it. We'll catch you next week. We have an interview coming up. Ooh. Ooh. Anything else, Marto? No. <laughs> that's it. I'm just <laughs> just make it ooh sound. All right. Yeah, it's a good, good interview. Stay tuned. One Stay week from now. Stay tuned. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye, Brian. Bye. Bye. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I tricked you into the reverse psychology thing. And I, it was so natural, too. <laughs> yeah. Am not. R2. Am not. R2. R2. Am not. Oh, ah, shit. Ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you, buddy. All right. Bye. Oh, you got the last right. word. Good shit. <laughs> <laughs>